This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another edition of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? I'm great, Joris. How you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Back in uh, Spain and Valencia, so I'm really enjoying uh, being home. And uh, yeah, uh, everything's wonderful, actually. Oh, How about good. you? But, um, you know, still in New York, still cold, <laughs> waiting for another <laughs> polar vortex to come uh, come hit us again. Otherwise, yeah, things are great. Well, Who do we well, have on today? <laughs> what, what do you say? Well, I, I hope it doesn't happen during when I'm there. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I can't guarantee it. It's all pretty kooky at this point, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. All right, well. all right, okay, okay. All right, let's hope it's uh, it's okay. But um, yeah. So today we got John Koala on the the 3D Pod, and uh, the cool thing about him is he got to start. Well, I'm about to say earlier than most, but that's a bit of an exaggeration. He started in 1997 in sales at Z or Z Corporation, which is a binder jet color printer. Um, and that was like in the very early days. So he built up that whole sales organization, ended up at, at 14 years as Z Corp uh, being the CEO of the company. Later worked for Spaceclaim, which is a, a 3D modeling application. Then, uh, well, robots and agriculture with Harvest Automation. Then he went to Envision Tech for a couple of years as a board member. And then he became president of North America of Ultimaker, where he worked for a couple of years to grow that business as well. Then he was advisor to a bunch of different companies before, uh, well, in, in 2019, uh, deciding to start BMF or Boston Microfabrication, uh, which is the micro arch uh, 3D printing system, allows, uh, you know, micro scale, uh, nanoscale kind of parts and details uh to be made so really varied experience hugely uh long experience as well and in very different areas if you think about it uh so uh yeah real honor to have uh, john on uh, the show today uh welcome to the show john yeah thanks for us max good to be here appreciate the invitation uh, yeah cool so so first off like okay so when you got started with z corp did you just like kind of walk in there do you have any idea what they were doing at this stage you no, they just walk so into it, some room <laughs> I, it, it was interesting so this i was involved i was a you know i spent the 90s uh start to date myself here but i spent the 90s working from some larger companies like ge and some advanced materials companies and i was part of my mandate was actually spending time doing technology scouting uh, i would on a regular basis be walking the halls of mit i guess is a good way to put it and um i was in a meeting you know, 20 something, you know, more than 25 years ago, where I saw um, really the first consortium, which was the Ellie Sachs Binder Jet uh, MIT crew. Uh, and back then, um, you know, that, that was one form of 3D printing. You know, there's, you know, lots of different forms of it. And I met uh, Marina Hitsopoulos, who was the founder of Z Corp. And so I, I often think about 3D printing. If we're in 4.0 now, let's call, you know, the 2020 decade 4.0. The 90s was, you know, three systems and Stratasys and only a few others. So then maybe that was 1.0. And then 2.0 was maybe, you know, 2000, you know, 2000 to 2010. That's where, you know, Z Corp uh, emerged. That's where companies like Object emerged. And then uh, so maybe that was 2.0. Um, and then 3.0 was, uh, you know, I think really started with uh, people like MakerBot. MakerBot shows up in 2010, you know, roughly. And. There's lots of been lots of companies since, but I, I literally ran into Marina Hatsopoulos. I saw what she was doing, uh, and admittedly, I was a mechanical engineer, but never used CAD, never 
was involved in design. And uh, my first impression was, what is that? Like, why would anybody ever want to do that? <laughs> that was my first impression. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she was engaging and I was curious. And uh, so I, uh, I joined the team. And at the time, we were less than 10 people. And in some ways, that was a disruption happening. Because, you know, if you go to 1997 or so, the probably the least expensive 3D printer you could buy was more than $100,000. You know, SLA and FDM and uh, uh, laser centering. And so Z Corp came along and there were, you know, a couple other Stratasys came down in price, created this whole other category, which was, okay, now you don't have to be Boeing to get a 3D printer. You could buy one for fifty or $60,000. So that was a, a price disruption and this whole idea of, you know, 3D printing and rapid prototyping, and you can have one in your office. And that was, I was part of that. And that was, that was a lot of fun and did that for uh, a bunch of years. And that company uh, evolved and, um, you know, the, 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 the total 3D printing market way back then was much, much smaller. We were maybe the third or fourth largest company at, uh, you know, in the end, about $50 million in revenue. Maybe 3D Systems and Stratasys were, you know, three times that at, at that time. But uh, yeah, a lot of fun. I think 3D printing for, for design and, you know, engineering testing, it's all ubiquitous now, but it was not ubiquitous in 1999. Uh, know, I'm since you were at GE at the time, like, was it not being kind of whispered in the hall at some level nope. or something like that? Nope, <laughs> nope, 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 <laughs> nope. And, it's, and, it's, and it's certainly, it certainly wasn't even close at that point to being considered for any type of end, end applications back then. So it was right. almost, you know, it was 100% uh, design, design and prototyping, which let's, let's remember, that's, that's still extremely valuable. I mean, the fact, the fact, you know, we sometimes brush over that, but the fact that uh, every, we all take it for granted now, but the fact that, you know, companies can have a machine in their building and get a part in half a day, right, for $10 and be able to make a decision is extremely valuable. And only a few companies were doing it back in the 90s. And now, you know, arguably most product, anybody designing a physical, tangible product is probably exposed to 3D printing in some way now in 2024. Okay, and then so tell us talks about because like the the Z Corp the the license for the Z Corp technology was for a binder jet in essentially potato starch, right? Which well, that caused, was the, that was yeah. yeah, that was that was the first uh, iteration, and we it somehow somehow got tagged with that for a long time, but pretty pretty quickly we moved to sort of gypsum and other types of synthetic materials. Yeah, potato starch not work. Because that sounds no, brilliant. Worked. I don't understand why we would not uh, want to do that. It worked. It worked. It worked, but. You know the value the, the the value proposition of Z Corp was that uh, one it was very fast, so you know relative to FDM it was probably five x or more faster, um, and so especially as the parts got larger, that that advantage became you know magnified. So if you're doing a let's say a, a model of a a shoe which is pretty pretty big, you know we would do that you know way faster than an FDM machine. Uh, architecture, where the parts were generally big and chunky, we were way faster than any other technology. We also then introduced color. Color became, you know, a big part of what we were known for, um, and lots of applications um, liked color. Uh, the downside of the Z Corp technology is it's sort of the pro and the con. We we used, you know, uh, powdered materials. We used generally standard HP inkjet technology that you could buy off the shelf. So the beauty of that is we didn't have to spend, you know, millions and or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in developing a printhead. 
we were using $30 printheads from HP. And so that made the, the technology pretty easy to use. But at the end of the day, it also limited what you could do in terms of materials, because you can essentially only put, you know, aqueous type mater water-based materials through a printhead. You couldn't put solvent or glue through a, an HP printhead. So at the end of the day, our, our strength was that we were very fast and we were uh, color and at the, at the time pretty cost competitive uh, for you know lots of different people doing design and prototyping. But at the end of the day, it, the parts were not very strong. And so if you really needed something plastic-like, uh, that's where that technology fell short. And and did so I, like the obvious thing to do is when you have color, especially, is to talk to the the model shop and uh, the prototyping people, right? But at that yep. point, they were making stuff by hand, so that must have been kind of yeah, very difficult to convince those people to do something different, or wasn't was it much easier? Or was it uh, you know, in the first couple of years, it took it took a while. It took a couple of years uh, because you know when we first started. When I first got involved in the, in the company, we started thinking about how, to, how do we sell this and what's the value proposition. We went to a whole bunch of companies and said, well, how much money are you spending on prototyping? And we, we wanted to hear like, well, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and it's, it takes you know, many weeks. And then you know, the, we could then say, voila, here's our solution. The reality was in 1998, 1999, most, most people said, we're not doing anything. You know, they're using CAD and they're designing things and CAD... CAD sort of predates 3D printing by 10 or 15 years. So, you know, CAD was becoming much more ubiquitous. But the answer was more often than not, well, we don't really get prototypes until the end. And you could argue at the end that a lot of the value is in the beginning, the bigger value is in the beginning. Um, and so it, it took some time to really uh, sort of develop an appreciation for why is it valuable to get models, you know, in the, in the first, first week of development, not in the 26th week of development. So that, so that took a while, but yeah, but then, you know, it became um, uh, a pretty common technology used in prototyping over the years. There's probably, I'm trying to guess, probably five, six, 7,000 uh, Z-Corp machines that were sold over the years. And again, we did well in segments that liked color. So consumer products, but where uh, there were some technical applications where people wanted to show Sort of FEA profiles on a part that was that was interesting. There were you know there were a couple. We we started to get into some technical applications like now we we could actually do sand on there. The way you know sand is now a little bit more um, understood on on some big platforms for sand casting, but you could actually do it on a Z Corp machine. So you could make you know smaller molds and cores. Um, you can make uh, patterns for fiberglass layup. So there were a bunch of technical applications, but most of it was design uh, and prototyping. And did you see your did you see your task at those early days? Like, were you there to build an industry or just find people for your product? I mean, there's different ways of doing this, right? You could sell the idea, the big idea, like prototyping is faster, or you could just really like sell on a value proposition basis or like cost savings. What was your idea? Did you want to do a 3D printing revolution or were you just trying to sell a box? What was your kind of strategy there? Well, it, it was both because you you could argue today, today, when um you're out uh you know, I think about our company now, BMF, you know, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. But, you know, when we're talking to customers uh, at this point, we generally don't have to sell them on the value of 3D printing. Usually, usually most of the prospects we're talking to already get it. They understand prototypes help them make decisions. Prototypes help them test. Uh, it gets into some uh, uh, jigs and fixtures. and uh, People get that now. But back in 98, 99, they... You know, it took a while to sort of get that 
that idea across. So instead of saying, you know, how much money you're spending and can we save you money? Our, our sales pitch was a little bit like, well, imagine if you had one of these machines in your office and imagine if you can get a part in half a day and imagine if the incremental cost was $10, would you use it all day, every day? And, and the answer was, yeah. And so then that, that took, took a while to, to develop. And, uh, you know, back then, I think the there were there was only a handful of companies sort of pitching this idea. Stratus has had some products that we were competitive with. It, the technologies were pretty different. You know, they had FDM and they were plastic, and we had our our technology, which was had it had its advantages and disadvantages. But we were all talking about exactly the same thing about how to how to have a have this resource in your in your building and how to get how to be able to go faster. Um, and the choices that were out there were pretty limited. There was there was us, there was Stratasys, there was, you know, Object came along a couple of years after that. There was, you know, just a handful of others. It not not the, the way there is today, where there's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of different choices that companies can make. Yeah. And one major handicap back then, of course, is that you guys were calling it 3D printing because you had access to the patent. Other people explicitly weren't. And they were saying things like laser cusing, rapid manufacturing, free form fabrication, gold knows what else, right? And yeah. so the, it was very difficult for people to really know that, that there was like an industry out there because we didn't identify as an industry, really. Like it was like all these people were doing their different things, all had the different terminology. Was that a handicap for you guys as well? Or, did you, or were you well... really surprised? Later on, yeah, later. you know, I I actually do remember because when we first got started, it was called rapid prototyping. Like that was it. Like everybody referred to this as rapid prototyping, and there were a couple different flavors of it: SLA and SLS and FDM, and, uh, and they people called it rapid prototyping. And then I remember, you know, Terry Wallers has his report every year, and he used to keep track of how many machines were sold by everybody. And uh, he started to break it out, and he. You know, there were a few years where he started to decide, okay, these these concept modelers, these fifty thousand dollar machines, uh, why don't we call those three D printers? Um, and then we'll call the other machines, you know, the, the the bigger, more expensive machines, the rapid prototyping machines. So for for a few years there, at least in Terry Wohler's way of presenting information out to the market, he he separated the two. Um, here are the 3D printers over here, and here are the rapid prototyping machines over here. Now, since that time, it's all sort of blended together into one big, uh, maybe confusing ter terminology. But uh, for it's a while, a, it's there, a sexy it, term. People like it, yeah. right? 3D oh, printer. Sure. Ooh, <laughs> sure, sure. And uh, if my memory is correct, nobody really grabbed that uh, trademark, which uh, was a mistake by all of us, I guess. It may not have ignited as much if it had been trademarked and if someone was protecting it yep. you know yep yeah. yep yeah it was, it was also it also depended on the media the media really loved the 3d printing as a term i think it was like the guy called uh what's again it was a guy from uh boing boing or something like that and he was a guy who did an interview for the for the new york times i think and he was predicted that the machines would get cheaper i think it was raw brush or something like that and he predicted the machines would get cheaper he used 3d printing and then you saw a whole bubble of articles uh, form around 3D printing rather than, and then more journalists found those articles and they started to build on that. So it was also really, really very organic building on that, uh, that really powerful term, I think, uh, for yeah. everyone. Anyway, but um, so. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, that was the, the next disruption that happened. I'm going to say right, it was right around 2010. And I think like MakerBot, right? MakerBot shows up um, and, you know, Brie Pettis is on the cover of Wired Magazine and and uh, now you can now these printers are you know two thousand dollars 
And that, uh, that's, I think that's an important milestone in the industry because it's, uh, you know, as the, as an incumbent CEO at the time. So imagine myself and Scott Crump and a couple other people, you know, at the other more well-established 3d printer companies, you know, we looked at that when it was happening and going on one hand, we're like, yeah, you know, that's, that's just for the, those are toys and those are just for, you know, the, the makers and the hobbyists. That's not going to affect our business. On the other hand, we were thinking, you know, uh-oh. <laughs> so this is this is going to lead to, uh, you know, a disruption. And, and it did, you know. I mean, and, and arguably in the early days, those 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 machines, you know, were those those first low-cost desktop 3D printers were, were not that good. They were made out of wood. You know, they, they, were, they were kits. But oh know, yeah, within, especially the maker but, bots. Those were yeah, not uh, but, but the cupcake. A, yeah, but within a few years, you know, after I left. Uh, we so Z Corp was acquired in 2012 um, by 3D Systems, and then I left the industry for about three or four years. And I, I remember this because in 2012, I was you know leaving 3D Systems, and I'm thinking to myself, this industry, this has been great. I've already worked. I've already worked for the best company you know in the industry. You know, I should go do something else. Because if you think about 2012, Warmobs didn't exist, Mark Wars didn't exist, GE wasn't in yet, HP wasn't in yet. All this stuff hadn't happened yet. You know, some of the some of the desktop printers were starting to come out, but a lot of the other things that uh, have developed over the last uh, 10 years hadn't really started yet. So I went and off and did something else for four years in, in automation, uh, and then uh, I came back and I uh, got involved with with Ultramaker in 2016, and now you now you're printing you know, glass filled carbon, you know, fiber parts on a $5,000 desktop printer. Uh, and it's, this isn't just for makers anymore. And so okay. I think that, you know, a lot of things happened during that time from a, from a technology point of view, from an adoption point of view, which I think it made it pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting that you're doing now, you've had three different kind of scaling cases, right? One is a 14 year adventure at, um, uh, at Z Corp. And then you had yep. uh, also a couple of years at Ultimaker when, you know, Ultimaker, well, it was initially kind of reticent to uh, go to the United States and then later on uh, built that up uh, quite considerably. So that was also the scaling with Ultimaker, now with BMF as well. Do you have any tips for scaling? Because all the scaling, every time I look up stuff about scaling, it's all these software guys and it's just, it's complete nonsense, right? And and uh, <laughs> and so to scale a, a hardware business is like, you know, so much more difficult. And and none of the learnings online really kind of refer to that you know, in a really really good way. You know, do you have any tips on that on that front? Yeah, I, I have a couple lessons I think that I've I've um, that have stuck with me. And um, you know, people people sometimes can be critical of this approach, but because especially in the in the sort of venture capital fueled world that we live in, but um, you know, hardware development takes some time, but then then even commercialization takes some time. And get, truly understanding product market fit, in my opinion, doesn't really happen. You, you can't say, you can't stand there and say, we have product market fit until you sold a bunch, to be honest. <laughs> and, and, and that those customers have bought more. Uh, so maybe, you know, you could, you could generate early revenue. Can you could say we've sold a bunch of units, but to truly feel like you've, you've hit on something and you've got product market fit, um, You've got to get out there and have people pay you real money for what you're selling. And so one of the I remember one of the lessons at Z Corp, you know, you know, very long time ago is when I first started myself and there was another gentleman by the name of Tom Clay. And we both were sort of the young guys starting there at the time. And 
we had this grand marketing plan. We're going to hire a bunch of sales guys and build a factory. And our chairman, his name is Walter Bornhorst, who is this, you know, very smart, very experienced guy. And unfortunately, you know, Walter passed away last week. He was, a, he had been ill for a bit, but we presented this large marketing plan and he just stared at us and he said, no, we're not doing any of that. You two, you know, he was referring to us kids at the time. I was about 30 years old. You two go sell 10 units and then come back to us. And so we, you know, went away with our sort of tails between our legs and we went and sold 10 units. And um, and we didn't build the factory, and we didn't hire 100 guys until we started. <laughs> and, and you learned until, why you don't do that because yeah, you well, sold 10 you know, units. Well, yeah, because because it's you know it it takes some time, and so I think one of the challenges in those hardware businesses is is understanding the pace that you because because what happens is if you overinvest, you run out of money. I mean, is is pretty much it, right? And then. Unfortunately, I think we're seeing some of that now with some of the, the players in the space who had some, you know, reasonable success in terms of getting uh, some commercial traction, but they're not making any money. And so, in some ways, they've, the scaling that they've done, um, or the I'll call it the profitability, hasn't caught up to the, to the scaling, and uh, and that's a challenge. Certainly, there are critics to that approach of, of, of being conservative when you scale it because you know it's there's a lot of you know go big or go home uh philosophy out there especially with venture funding but uh you know if you're if you have the if you have the luxury with investment and you have the luxury with time to be able to build a business and understand you know why are people buying your product understand how you can make money then uh in the long run i think you're gonna be better off also, though, how much of it was restricted by the sheer fact that there weren't enough people who knew about the tech? I mean, it's a whole new industry on some level, right? Yeah. So, so, so in back, the eighties, so, yeah. So back know. then, so, so back, yeah, back then, that was that was his point. Yeah, with you guys go sell ten units, it wasn't about is our product. You know, we we were feeling pretty bullish that our product was going to be pretty attractive, but um, he, he was like, nobody knows what this is. It takes a long time. They have to, you know, it was also fifty or $60,000, which is not something you could typically, you know, whip out a credit card with. And, um, and it's just going to take time. And uh, so we would have been, we would have failed. Z, Z Corp would have failed if we raised $20 million and hired 30 sales guys and built a factory in 1999, because we would have overbuilt for what, uh, what the market, uh, allowed us to uh to sell at the time yeah and i also think that you know once you have paying customers they will actually complain and they will actually you know point out that you they expect more or they will point out that they're, they're, they're actually looking for completely different things like you know for example like you know much more uh, service in their own language or, or 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 training and all these other things that you may not have thought generic to filament so yeah <laughs> like, sure yeah no yeah exactly i think i think there's a lot of stuff out there that, that i think the slow approach to me especially in a hardware 3d printing situation these devices are super complex and i remember i remember working on for certain a couple of vendors on things like where we're trying to discover problems and when where we we didn't had no idea that things were happening or we thought that things were going wrong for the wrong reasons and 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 it turned out to be something completely different and i think that's a they you know, think for 3d printing that's a really good lesson to be slow uh, in this case yeah no i, yeah, I couldn't now, agree now, more with that now you you wouldn't uh i mean your 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 preference always 
right? So your preference is not to go slow and, and sell small amounts of printers. Your preference is to go fast, certainly, and 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 uh, you know, and, and build a fortune quickly. You know, certainly that's what everybody wants to do. But but the point is about scale, pacing pacing how you scale, and always always uh, checking whether that's on a quarterly basis or yearly basis. You know, do, does our product meet the market? Uh, do we have product market fit? You know, is this really going to be attractive? Can we scale? It, it might be that you're in a very niche market and you can only scale to a certain level. Um, and then if you you want to grow beyond that, you need to maybe think about other stuff to, to add to your portfolio. But it's it's always checking, um, you know, whether that's formally or informally within your company. Like, is this, is are we getting real traction here? Are we getting, are, are customers really getting value out of what we're doing and and also checking are we are we as a vendor getting paid enough um yeah. to to uh sustain ourselves right yeah i think i think the product market fit is a huge thing i think what i've also seen is really bizarre things happen with that that either like in large companies they do a lot of research at the beginning maybe focus groups or interviews and things and then they just like they set it in stone that's it you know <laughs> <laughs> the market isn't well, changing, you know, and a lot of companies don't update it enough. Like, as and the startups often don't even do it because they have this kind of gut feeling this is where the market is going, you know. But they don't and have so money and time to do it as well. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the challenge with mar product market fit, and I've done this a few times with different companies, whether advisor or board role or, or as an employee, is it, it's hard because you what so what's you could you could gather statistics, you could go talk to a whole bunch of companies people, potential customers. But the challenge when you talk to the potential customers is I think there is a propensity to get what I'll call a false negative, or, or, or I'm sorry, a false positive. Uh, I don't think there's many false negatives. If they say it's a bad idea, we won't buy it, they're probably right. But if the, the false positive comes with, yeah, that, that sounds like a great idea, guys. We, we would buy that, yeah. right? Um, and then you, you know, then you show up a year or two later with your product and they don't buy it because they don't find enough value in it when they're telling you that they don't want to hurt your feelings right and they're just so there, there is you got to be able to really dig deeper past the yeah that looks like a great idea you know we we would buy that like really try to understand why they would buy that. i always also uh, have the the no thing where when when we in my company invented 3d pens and we initially were approached by toys r us and we actually said no we're not ready for you yet. Our supply chain isn't big enough. Like we can, we can handle a Brookstones, you know, 200 stores type of thing, but we can't handle a thousand stores or 2000 stores. And okay. we said, you got to wait a year or two so that we can build yep. our supply chain network up and things of that nature. But so it's, I think people often outpace themselves in terms of if there's a lot of hype around it and they go and they do get into a lot of doors, but then they don't have the supply chain set up in the background to support it. Hard and work. then they, yeah, then they choke. Or, yeah, you know, exactly. Or, yeah, yep. yeah. You yep. can't, and then you lose that customer because once you promised you something and then you can't actually produce it in time, you know that that was your shot. So better to yep. say, wait, I'll, I'll get to you soon. <laughs> yep. So so okay, then you joined Ultimaker. So Ultimaker, you know, had a okay. Talk about go to market. It was a, that was completely accidental. <laughs> uh, product market fit was like also a coincidence, right? Uh, at one point. Yeah. And then you ended up having a company that was really big in Europe, had a lot of demand in the US, and then had a really weird construction previously with Dynamism and all these other guys doing it yep. for them, making certain things in the state, assembling them in the States. Apparently the, yep. the guys were just terrified of like the liability, the idea of like, 
some three-year-old would drop the printer on their foot or whatever, you know? And, and so you, you're then, and then all of a sudden they decide, you know, 2014, 15, whatever, they decide, look, at, we're going to make a go of it. We're going to do our own U.S. operation. Was that a, and did you, what was that like for you? Because Ultimaker is a very, well, it's an idiosyncratic company, an idealistic company, also a really fun one, but also, yep. yeah, quite difficult to work with for some people. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so I, I believe, Doris, you were there for a time too, and I don't I don't yeah. believe we overlapped. You were there maybe earlier than that, but uh, yeah. yeah, so so this was 2016. I had done this automation company, and and everything had changed in 3D printing. So I was I was looking for a way back in, to be honest, and uh, met met Berger and met some of the folks over there, and and I found this intriguing, and so uh, got involved and really helped them build that brand, um, and uh, you know it's it's a uh, I think I, in my opinion, Ultimaker, um, I, I've lost track a little bit how it's going these days, but uh, at the time, you know, Ultimaker was was rocking, right? It, 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 there was there was all these different uh, 3D printer companies out there, you know, many and many, um, and Ultimaker had a had a, a a good box, a good brand, you know, good marketing. They had Cura, uh, they had pretty good supply chain. And so I think Ultimaker is a very good example of a, a fast follower. So you could argue that MakerBot was first and maybe maybe stumbled a bit. And Ultimaker just walked right through the door and executed well. Um, you know, the, 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 the machines and the software are, are good, but, you know, you can argue, are they, are they truly differentiated from a lot of the other box? And my argument would be no, but they executed very well. And therefore, they you know, sort of rose to the top in that sort of price category. Um, over those number of years, and it, and, and it turned into a little bit of a, uh, it's certainly a different sales process than uh, some of the more expensive 3D printers where you go through, uh, you know, ROI and testing and benchmarking and materials and justification. Uh, Ultimaker turned into a little bit of, well, you know, we're number one, well, you might as well buy this one, right? And it, and it worked. <laughs> uh, it, I, I, got, I learned that lesson very early on. Um, we had the pleasure of uh, a gentleman by the name of John Hirschtech, who was the founder of SolidWorks, was on the Z Corp board. And SolidWorks go back to 1990, the late 1990s when SolidWorks started. And there was there was desktop CAD, other desktop CAD that was out there. And you could make an argument that SolidWorks was maybe a little bit better, but it was you know sort of the same as some of the others at the time. But they just jumped out to a big lead. They got out there. They had a good product. They had a great channel. Um, and their sales pitch turned from features and functions to this is the standard. This is number one. You, you might as well buy SolidWorks. And that that was a home run. And so in some ways, the Ultimaker, of, Ultimaker business of you know, 2016 to 2019 when I was there was very much that. Uh, and it really the success was was on the back of, you know, pretty good execution in terms of supply and channel and marketing and, and everything else yeah I think, I think i think one of the things that like really impressed me when i worked at ultimaker is their ability to say no to things even though they were like for example they for a long time held back on implementing uh, uh new channel partners because they just simply didn't have the time to evaluate them properly and they were basically like it was month after month i was costing them money right yeah um and they, they still did this because they didn't want bad channel partners. I think that's kind of the guts to say no is is so often overlooked. Like everybody's always like, yes, go, go, go. And sometimes you just have to say no, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that was a that was a pleasure. That was fun. Uh, you know, did that uh, 
you know, for those years there. Okay. And then, and then, and, you know, did you really believe in the desktop market or do you believe that it could evolve or do you believe in the professional market at that time? Where, where did you think this was headed and where do you think it's headed right now? I, I definitely am a believer in the desktop market uh, and became even more of a believer, you know, my first, you know, six months or a year working at Ultramaker because I could really see that these, these printers could be in, well, they are today, but they could be in all sorts of professional organizations. They can do, if they can't do exactly what a $100,000 printer can, can do, they're pretty close, you know, in terms of uh, what they can do in terms of materials and accuracy and, and, and things. Um, and uh, and I, I, I never really bought into sort of the, the big hype cycle and, and, and uh, bubble that happened, let's say, in 2013, that uh, desktop printers when it would be in everybody's home. Uh, and I think that was, you know, that that was that big hype cycle that sort of went up and went down, um, where 3D printers would be in everybody's home. That, that certainly makers who are serious about making things and who have a lathe in their basement, they'll get a 3D printer. That makes sense. Um, schools, um, uh, you know, maker spaces, libraries, and then, you know, then the professional market, um, all all made lots of sense for desktop 3D printers. But as a home appliance, as as you don't common, want, as you don't you, want your plates to be 3D printed. No, every meal. I mean it's interesting. <laughs> I mean it, it's interesting. I I uh, I've been in 3D printing for 25 plus years. I don't have a 3D printer in my house and don't want one. Like I just I don't. That's yeah, my, not, my wife I, made me take mine out. <laughs> I mean I, I don't stays uh, in the I office. <laughs> I have I have other hobbies and it's not making things. And so um, I also think the biggest, the whole idea of uh, 3D printing for a while was the immediacy of being able to get something, you know, a replacement doorknob for your kitchen cabinet. I, you know what, I can go to Amazon and I can have it tomorrow for, for, for a dollar. Right. Um, and so I think and it'll some be stronger ways, and it re <laughs> will really be, you know, yeah. brass. Or something. It'll be injection molded or exactly. Right. It'll be metal. And so I think in a lot of ways, the, the immediacy of, of, of uh, you know, e-commerce um, fulfills the the itch that most people have for getting things quickly. I now, by the way, th uh, thanks to Bamboo Lab, do believe that it's technically possible now to give uh, put a three D printer in any home, at least the the you know the next generation or so. I think they could be uh, you know as easy as toasters for things. Um, so I do think it is possible. But I agree on the sense that what is the impetus for doing this? Like we need to find a way to convince people to do this thing and a way to create a need. And if we can't do right. that, then there isn't one. And then yeah, then it's not going to happen either. But right, then you don't I, need. I, it. I do think yeah. yeah, but I do think it yeah. can be broader than just makers and hobbyists. You know, but for example, if you made a recycling system and you made it all about sustainable or craft, you know kind of scrapbooking for stuff i think there is a way to make it much much bigger like hundreds of millions of people instead of just millions of people and i think now it's technically possible and i think yeah back in 2013 yeah forget it i, I was struggling yeah. at home well, <laughs> so I, I, let alone I, other people i think you're right George. There's, there's two sides to it one it, it wasn't that easy right it, well it was sort of hard and you really need to 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 fool around with the printer to get it to work uh but two it was also the need part I mean, when I think about why I don't have a 3D printer in my house, it's not because I'm intimidated by using it. What am I going to do with this thing? So I, I think it's uh, it's finding, I think for for truly to be something that's in you know a certain percentage of homes around the world, the applications or what it would make that you can't normally buy quickly, um, 
would have to evolve. And to be honest, you know, I thought long and hard about what those are and I've yet to come up with it. So I, I get it. I think in like the trade space, plumbing, electrician, you know, I can totally mm -hmm. see it evolving. It mm -hmm. has two things though, because you still need a software that's simple. The, yep. if you, that only makes pipes, let's say, for example, and, and I'm a plumber. So I buy this machine that I can make weird pipe shapes that would have been a pain in the butt to make previously. Like that is, yep. I see as a, an example, but I, I agree with you. I don't see a, its need inside of a, a common home in North yep. America or Western Europe or China or something like that. Like, what are you doing with it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that's an issue. I think at one point, I think it was 2009 or something like that. Not so when we were experiencing having fun with these cupcake things, which were wonderful. And uh, now it's in 2009, 10. I wrote a blog post back when I was at Shapeways about this whole idea of what about Singer sewing machines, right? We can already make everything yep. we want at home, right? Uh, at custom made to our fit, whatever style we want with sewing machines, right? And those are, you know, you can use a sewing machine in less time it takes you to use a 3D printer. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and and yeah. but nobody's is promising that sewing machines, sewing your own clothing is the future of all making. And at the same time, I know people that are actual fashion designers, actual almost golf fashion designers, and they know how to make, use sewing machines, but they don't make all their clothes themselves, right? They do that professionally, they do it for some of their clothes and some special things for friends and stuff. Yep. But they like buying clothes from other people as well and buying vintage and stuff. So I think there's a lot more to be said than than just saying, you know, this whole idea of push button everything, you know. So then you left the industry for a couple of years after that, right? So and you kind of were drawn back once again, like the second thing. What, what brought you back to, to uh, again uh, this time? To, to BMF? Yeah. So actually, my, my hiatus was was between Z Corp in 12 and, and uh, Ultimaker in 16. So I was at Ultimaker from 16 to 19. And then I you know, was interested in sort of going back to the earlier stage and I got involved with BMF. And uh, so I met the BMF guys in 2019 and was intrigued by what they were doing. And I was, I was still, you know, I, I spent a good part of my career in, in additive and I'm still very bullish on it. Um, and I've have almost always been in the, on the sort of technology vendor hardware side of the business. Um, and so I was looking for the next thing and um but I was also very conscious of the fact that the market from a technology point of view had, had gotten, and this is going to even 2019, it's probably even, well, maybe it's less so today or more so, but it had gotten very crowded, right? Lots of technology vendors. So you know, whether it's desktop FF machines or it's million dollar metal machines, it, it's gotten crowded. And I think that's one of the challenges in the industry now is there's probably not enough uh, market for all the new uh, the new entrants, I mean, I think the market in dollars, in terms of people spending money every year on machines and materials and services and parts, continues to grow, which is fantastic, right? It continues to grow ten or twenty or thirty percent a year, but there's it's crowded, and so I was very conscious of this when I was thinking about the next thing. Is ideally you're finding something that you can clearly find a couple points where you're differentiated. And you think you can win and be be high value, and then BMF was was that, which was interesting. So BMF, technical founder of BMF, his um, name is Nick Fang, is a professor at MIT, and he saw a, a market opportunity with additive of getting to a level of precision and uh, resolution and feature size that was sort of beyond the reach of the best of SLA or the best of other DLP technologies. So that from a market point of view, that's what he saw. And then he, from a technology point of view, he said he, he could see how um, 
you know, essentially a DLP platform could be made very high precision. So, uh, so the company, uh, BMF was founded in 17, uh, and it was actually founded in, in China primarily because Nick, Nick is, was here in Boston. He was a college professor and like most college professors, they don't quite know how to start a company. don't have the time. They're a college professor. So he really went to his, one of his best friends to help him start the company. And, and that best friend was in China. So the company started in Shenzhen in 2017. They raised some money. They got some first units out there. And then I got involved in 2019 when they decided like, hey, this is, we think this is working. Um, we think we have something here, but we really want to be a global company and we need to, we can't, we don't think we can really do this out of solely out of Shenzhen. And so I got involved in 2019, spent some time in summer of uh, 19 in China, which was, which was great. I was impressed by the team. I was, I was very intrigued and, and curious about the market opportunity and uh, joined the company. We did a little bit of sort of repositioning and uh, we actually changed the name of the company to Boston Microfabrication. It was, uh, it was, it was, it's always been BMF, but BMF stood for something else before. So we, Ideally, it was good as the acronym uh, fit with what we wanted to call it. And uh, and then we launched in February of 2020, which was right when COVID was starting. <laughs> so uh, uh, so it's been good. Perfect, we, perfect timing, right? Perfect, perfect timing. Well, you know, in a, in, in a way. In a way, actually, yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> like 3D printing you know, went crazy. Well, but well, uh, also, what, as, if for the stage of startup that you're in, our revenue wasn't going to go down. Right, we were just starting, so so it was fine. I mean, fair. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> and so you know, I mean, I, I think back to Z Corp going back to the two thousand eight, two thousand nine. You know, we were a we were a, a you know a decent sized company, um, you know, growing quickly, and and then two thousand nine came with the financial crisis worldwide, and two thousand eight, and you know, our revenue went down a lot, right? And we had to make some changes and adjust. But in this case, we're getting started. We were just getting started. So we started, you know, in in in, uh, in 2020 and the market opportunity that we're really looking to fulfill are those applications where people need very high precision. When I'm, I'm talking sort of tens of microns or they have features that are also tens of microns, like, you know, a hole or a wall or a post. And uh and then the backdrop of all this is that there are trends happening in many of these industries that parts are getting smaller. So uh, could be a medical device, it's electronics, it's optics and photonics, it's life sciences, lots of things are getting smaller. So between fulfilling a market need, which was really beyond the reach of, of other uh, 3D printers, and the fact that you know lots of companies, uh, design, you know, product designers are facing this constraint that things need to get smaller. That's been the driver for our business. So our customers uh, are in medical device, they're in uh, electronics, optics and photonics and life sciences. Parts, uh, a lot of the parts tend to be small, but some of the parts are are larger and they just need a high level of surface finish or high level, level of resolution. And so um, so it's gone well. You know, we're, we're fortunate we're in this niche that, uh, not really a lot of competition, if any. Um, the competition, um, if any, is really, I'm going to call it adjacent competition. It's the other DLP systems um, that are, are good, you know, um, three systems and, and desktop metal and, um, you know, a handful of others have 
have DLP platforms that, that work well and are, have, have a range of materials, but when you really need that level of precision and or feature size, uh, that's where we tend to shine. And, and going back to the question that uh, half an hour ago from Doris about do people, are we educating people about the value of 3D printing? Not here in 2024. Most of our customers already understand the value of 3D printing. They already have a bunch of, of technologies and we tend to be sort of supplementing that or adding to that when they need to, uh, more in terms of performance. Okay, but then I think the difficulty of you guys, I think was two, we'll get to one later, I think. One is the fact that, okay, I can understand that a university want a lab machine to play around on. Super wonderful. But the thing is, if you're looking at all the stuff, like the micro optic stuff, the um, kind of what I call the near mem stuff, you know, um, yep. all that kind of stuff, then, then of course, if it's successful, if it comes out of the lab, we're talking millions of uh, SKU, right? We're talking mu millions of, of possibilities, millions of, 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 of permutations. And also like, we're talking literally billions of parts, right? Well, there's like, we forget sometimes how much of these electronics components there are. So these guys that are talking about really industrializing this stuff, they're talking very differently than, I don't know, like an Adidas who's talking about, oh, we want to make a hundred thousand shoes, you know? That these guys yeah. are talking like literally about millions of components and, and also about kind of Six Sigma stuff that, you know, the other guys in our industry will take a long time to achieve. So yeah. to me, the, the chasm that you have to jump over in your case is like, oh, well, sure, I'll buy a lab machine, but can it actually print for all the iPhones? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that's a good point. I mean, I think, uh, um, but but we also, and, and getting to those levels of volume uh, cost-effectively is, is in the future. Um, but today we still have, there's, there's enough today for, where the volumes aren't hundreds of millions, where, you know, some of the connector companies, certainly they have SKUs that are, that are tens of millions, but they also have SKUs that are tens of thousands, you know, that might be military or they might be Marine or other applications, um, where when they're doing tens of thousands, the math starts to make sense today you know, given our current platform. Uh, in medical device, in certain types of medical device applications, especially consumable medical device where they're they're using the, the, the device once for 15 minutes and then they're throwing it away, those also tend to not be hundreds of millions. Those tend to be sort of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. And so at least in the in the present and in the in the near future, in the next year or two, you know, we see that our platform um, is is being used in some cases and will be used uh, for production applications where, I mean, there's always the checkbox. There's three checkboxes, I think. You know, one is the part good enough. You know, materials, accuracy, surface finish, that's number one. Two, does the math make sense from an economics point of view and, you know, volume and cost? And three, there's when you're, when you're into manufacturing is about, you know, compliance and quality. And you mentioned Six Sigma. And those are the three checkboxes. And uh, on number one and number two, you know, we're pretty close, you know, uh, for a number of applications. Number three is, you know, just like I think a lot of us in, in the 3D printing world, we're trying to learn how to do that as quickly as possible. But, uh, you know, I think that that chasm is, is there for, you know, whether you're doing small micro, you know, micro parts or large metal parts, you know, I think it's a lot of the same challenges. Yeah, and the other thing that's a challenge, I think, is the fact that, okay, so your founders are Chinese, but they're working in America. You've got offices in China and the States. 
and uh, partnerships with Chinese institutes and also in American investors, Chinese investors. And we hear from a lot of people, like it came up twice in, in previous podcasts where people are just kind of afraid of China and people are just expecting the, the market to go kind of like, you know, China only, China versus the world kind of thing. And you guys kind of straddle that US-China kind of cooperation thing. Is that an issue yep. for you? Do you see that as an, op or are you just really optimistic about the future of US-China relations, let's say? Well, I, I am. I tend to be a globalist and, you know, maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm naive, but uh, it hasn't really been a challenge for us. I mean, are there, are there companies who have chosen not to invest in our technology because we have Chinese roots? Maybe. You know, they, they haven't told us. They usually don't tell you. Um, but more often than not, actually, we think it's been an advantage. You know, we have operations in China. We have operations in the U.S. We have a team in Europe. We have an office in Japan. And we're dealing with multinational, you know, OEMs whose, whose development centers are in Minneapolis or Munich. But guess where they're making their product still today? I mean, they're making it in China. And yeah. so it, it has been... We've had more, this has happened many times where uh, we have had U.S. based customers or European based customers after having our technology and maybe not even knowing, you know, what our background is said, hey, we have a factory in 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 uh, the south of China. Could you help us there? Sure. I mean, we have an operation in China. Oh, really? OK. So at least for today, we think it's been actually an advantage. Now, we we are sensitive to trade issues and we're sensitive to you know the the potential tensions there and you know you never know what and, and tariffs <laughs> uh yeah we have tariffs i mean yeah. when we ship things from the china china to the u.s we have tariffs and we absorb those costs and you know it's unfortunate but it is what it is but i think you know net it's been a positive that we've been able to be as global as we are even though we're a small company at this stage What's your game game plan to growing and becoming like a much bigger firm? What, what, what do you hope to do? Is more of the same? Is it leaps and bounds forward? Selling directly, selling indirectly? What are the kind of things you want to do? Yeah, so so we um, we're you know we're bullish about the equipment business that's continuing to grow really well. We we grew strongly in 2023. Uh, most people haven't, so it's a little bit of a bright spot I think in the industry. But we also are very sensitive to the fact that if if there are going to be if there's going to be significant growth across the industry that that the OEM vendors like like BMF and others really need to try to invest more in app, end applications one to support our customers certainly but two also to be considering applications that we develop our on our, on our own and we have a couple efforts happening right now. One is in the dental market. So we're developing a sort of an ultra thin uh, dental veneer. So that's that's on our own dime. You know, we're building that uh, we're building that capability and we we have uh, regulatory activities going on um, to to offer zirconia uh, veneers that are printed at 100 microns thick. The qualifier for any of these efforts that we do is one, are, do we think this is an end application that we think is high value? And do we think we can uniquely do it with our platform? So the, the ultra thinier effort is, is, on that, is on that list. We have an office that we set, set up in San Diego about a year ago, really developing uh, unique lab on chip structures uh, for life sciences and uh, cell growth and tissue growth. 
building sort of chips that we that have unique properties that we think would really enhance tissue growth. And we again, the, the qualify here is we don't think you could make this thing any other way. And so we're investing in addition to continuing to help our customers get into production and sell machines and then build our fleet, we are investing in end applications on our own. You know, we think that's important for us as a company. And, you know, we would encourage, you know, the other OEMs out there in the market to be thinking about the same. I think that's a really great approach. I mean, I've written a bunch of articles about this, and I think that the applications is, is, is you know, the be-all, end-all of this. And also, I think what's really important, I think I think with you guys, the applications could be so super valuable and so huge uh, volume that it even makes a lot more sense than a lot of other 3D printing technologies where the volumes would tend to be lower. Yep. And so, so I really like that. How do you do this from a partner perspective? I mean, at one point, the guys from Densply Serona walk in, they have a conversation with you about buying a machine. How do you kind of separate that so not everybody like thinks you're kind of like going to, you know, sell your you know secrets to yourself or, you know, how do you, how do you make sure these guys can trust you? Yeah, that, that, that's a risk, certainly. But, um, you know, I think uh, I think it's on us to be coming up with ideas that uh, are unique and novel. Um and uh, where we have the dense supply Seronas of the world come to us after the fact and say, you know what? Hey, that's a really good idea. Can, can we work with you guys? And so that's uh, and, and we're going to we're going to need partners like that to be able to really scale this out and go to market when we think about, uh, you know, what uh, we don't have a full sales and marketing. Or we don't have anything that yet in terms of a sales and marketing organization to sell into the dental market. We're going to need partners like that. Uh, you know, when we think about our lab on a chip application, you know, once this can get fully developed, it'll, it'll probably take a couple of years. But, you know, our vision here is this is uh, these are devices that are sold into big pharma labs all over the world. And so who sells into big pharma labs all over the world? People like Thermo Fisher and Merck and others. And so, you know, we hope we hope these are business opportunities that uh, we can work with some of our customers and partners on. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think, and also one of the things that excites me most about this micro area is kind of idea this this kind of MEMS or kind of like short run MEMS. So MEMS are great, right? But you have to spin it up, and it takes a lot of money, and it takes a lot of time, yeah. and then you have a little pressure sensor for a billion iPhones, right? But imagine I just need like a ten thousand of them. Then usually MEMS don't make sense, or you know, if it needs to be custom. So I love the idea of being able to make MEMS like let's say devices, but using three D printers. And I think this lab on a chip is just one of the applications. But I could imagine lots of sensors, lots of antenna type devices, lots of devices in that sense that are kind of work similar to MEMS, but are much available, much lower volumes, thanks to additive manufacturing. Yeah. And we, uh, you know, we have uh, lots of activities and customers and applications in, in those areas. Um, a lot of it's, it's pretty new, you know, so a lot of it is not sort of disrupting a current supply chain or current product, but uh, you know, antennas are getting smaller because, you know, frequencies are going up. Uh, it's sort of a, a law of physics. And so things are getting smaller there. We see, um, you know, lots of things in the, I'll call the peripheral of whether it's semiconductor or MEMS, you know, whether it's the, the whole testing world of, of chips or, or components, uh, people doing, uh, you know, electronics testing or chip testing. Um, a lot of the components and fixtures and jigs are, they're just smaller. And so we see a lot of activity there, but we're, we're still very much learning as well. Okay, I think that's really great. And, well, John, thank you so much for your time today uh, with us today. It was great. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. Appreciate it. And thanks as well for you, uh, Max. Always. Thank you, Joris. And thank you for listening to another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. 
You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.